Welcome to the summer bonus episode of College Land, a podcast featuring untold stories from higher education. I'm Nan Enstead in Madison, Wisconsin. I'm Lisa Levenstein in Greensboro, North Carolina. We're here to explore life inside our nation's colleges and universities and to track some of the major changes that are happening. Today, we're pleased to announce that some exciting new changes are coming to College Land. We've expanded the College Land team and when we return in the fall, our format will be a little different. We're super excited about these new happenings, but change is always bittersweet. Our wonderful producer from our first season, Rochelle Wilson, will be taking on some new roles. Rochelle has been with College Land since we started and has been an absolutely essential part of the team. So before we move on to the next season of College Land, we thought it would be fun to introduce her to you. Rochelle is a PhD student in Scandinavian Studies at the University of Wisconsin-Madison and the producer of A Public Affair at WORT-FM in Madison, Wisconsin. She has also just taken on the role of managing editor at the digital magazine of environmental studies out of UW-Madison called EdgeFX. Rochelle, welcome to College Land. Thanks for having me. It's uh, interesting to be on the other side of this. Rochelle, you're what higher education calls a first-gen student or first-generation. Can you tell us a little bit about your background? Yeah, absolutely. My parents were both high school educated, and I grew up in Michigan. My dad worked for the railroad, and my mom was a stay-at-home parent. So those are kind of the models that I had going into high school, and I think that they had a vague sense that I should go to college, that this would maybe help my chances, and yet kind of had no idea what that actually meant, what that would entail. So when I was applying for schools, I kind of was doing a lot of research on my own as like a 15, 16, 17-year-old, trying to figure out what my next step was going to be. There were all of these applications. There was all of this bureaucracy. I was kind of lost in a maze of how to make college happen for myself. And I think that's one of the iconic experiences of being first gen is just that barrier to entry in the first place. College, as we've talked about on the podcast, it's this like massive ecosystem. And when you're entering it for the first time, you sort of have no idea what to do. And that's where I was. So I did end up getting accepted and going to a university in Utah. It was a fantastic experience. But I'll admit, looking back, I didn't realize these things at the time, but I kind of didn't know exactly how to behave in that space. It was all very new to me. And so I just kind of was learning on the go all the time, all semester, all those first four years was just a major learning experience for me. So yeah, first generation essentially just means that you're the first in your family to go to college or your parents didn't go to college. And the reason it's important to talk about is because of those barriers, because of that way that it makes college, which is already a totally new space for students to be entering. It's just that much more difficult for first-gen students. 
And in some ways, Rochelle, you're kind of a double first-gen student because you're a first-gen student as an undergrad, but then also you decide to go and get a PhD. And that, I think, is probably an experience where there might even be fewer first-generation students pursuing graduate degrees. So can you talk a little bit about that decision, why you decided to go to graduate school and how being a first-gen student influenced those decisions that you made and also the experience that you've been having? Yeah, those are all really good questions, really important questions. When I was at school, when I was an undergrad, I sort of thought of school as just an extension of high school. And in high school, doing schoolwork and doing well at schoolwork is your job. And that's kind of how I thought about college. I was really enjoying myself. I was learning. And I just kind of thought it was my ticket to the middle class. But I didn't know what that actually meant in terms of a career or anything like that. So I kind of just thought, well, hey, once I have this degree, I'm just going to be able to waltz out of here and, you know, do the next thing. And as time was ticking on, I kind of had no roadmap for what that was actually going to look like. It increasingly seemed like that wasn't the case, that something wasn't going to magically fall from the sky just because I had a college degree. And I had a professor come to me after I had written a term paper, and I think it was maybe my sophomore, junior year, and say, you should go to graduate school. When you hear that from a professor as an undergraduate, your eyes are just lighting up. You're like, perfect. I can keep coming to classes. I can keep learning. I can keep doing this thing that I know I'm really good at, and I can kind of stay on this track. And it was flattering, too. The other thing being that when you're talking to your professors about going to graduate school, that's the best career advice they often have to give because that's exactly the path that they took. So they're speaking to you from personal experience saying, hey, grad school could be a really great option for you. And that's exactly the kind of career advice that they're poised to give. So I became enamored with the idea just because I really didn't want to leave school. So I started a master's program and that's it was just kind of a continuation of what I'd been doing. And after my master's degree, I I lived in Sweden for a while. And when I came back to the States, I got just a regular nine to five job at a nonprofit. And to be honest, it was really soul-sucking to me personally. Clocking in and clocking out felt like a real drudgery. I really missed writing. I really missed discussing and reading and engaging in these ideas the way that I had in my undergraduate and in my master's program. And I was still actually putting those skills to use. I was going to academic conferences just totally rogue as like an independent scholar because that's what I was interested in doing. That's what I knew how to do. That's what I was good at. So I ended up applying for the PhD specifically for that reason. I didn't think there was going to be a home for me in the corporate or even the nonprofit world. I wanted to be back on campus. It has that draw. We know this in college land. College is a magical place. Can you situate us in time a little bit and talk about what years this is? I'm just struck by the fact that right now I have to admit, you know, speaking from someone teaching in a history department, when students come to me and tell me that they're interested in going to graduate school, the first thing I try to do at this point in time is try to dissuade them of the possibility, you know, like tell them there's, this is, you know, I send them to read up on the job market. I have them talk to other graduate students, you know, about what life is really like. I do everything I can, honestly, to kind of pull back the curtains and open their eyes into what actually 
would happen if they showed up in graduate school. So I'm wondering this advice that you got as an undergraduate from your professors, what years was that in? I'm wondering if that was maybe a different time or just a different set of professors with a different set of concerns. Ironically, as I go back into my mental catalog, the year would have been 2008 when I first got that advice. So I, I'm not exactly sure what mindset this professor was in, maybe not really realizing the shifting tides that were happening. We might have been at an institution where this professor felt more protected and, and wasn't seeing the writing on the wall, or it just might have been just early enough before this discourse was made really widely available. So I'm not exactly sure then how to account for that, but I, I think that this advice continues to persist, even though it sounds like you're being really responsible Lisa, and kind of letting your students know what the reality is. I think that there are a lot of professors who don't necessarily want to dissuade a student who is bright and wants to move on in this profession. And certainly the students, I mean, we have the blinders on. By the time that I came around to start my PhD program in 2015, by then I'd heard the refrain many times over of maybe don't do this. Maybe it's very precarious. But you just think, well, there's the survivor's bias. Everyone who it worked out for are the ones who are there to talk with you. There's not a database of, you know, people who wanted to be professors and it didn't work out. So I think that you just have this idea that I'm going to be the exception. Absolutely. But I also think now, you know, kind of coming from the other side to think about it, it's also challenging as a professor because we don't want academia to only be the very elite, right? We don't want only people who can kind of independently finance their educations to be the people who are in higher education. Yet, we also know that those are the people who are going to be hurt the most by the kinds of loans they're going to need to take out and, you know, and by the kind of general precarity of the institution right now. So like on the one hand, I'm thinking about that professor encouraging you and how much that meant and how much higher education benefits from having first gen students like you in part of the mix. Yet at the same time, you know, I mean, maybe you can talk about some of, you know, kind of what the costs have been actual, maybe literal costs truly of your career. In terms of the cost to me, I was at a really affordable undergraduate institution, and I still left with about 40 k in debt. And I have more from my graduate degrees. And that's not because my tuition wasn't covered, but it was because, you know, students, undergraduates, graduates, we have life expenses just like everyone else. And part of being first gen is having to tell people over and over again that, no, my parents will not be paying for that. No, that's not part of the agreement. No, <laughs> they can't afford that. That's not going to be happening. So I, I think over and over again, people don't really understand. They think of students as this very privileged class. Class and with a parent always at the ready to pay expenses. And the fact of the matter is, a lot of us are, you know, paying our own way through. And this narrative about having a summer job or even having a school year job that helps you pay your way through, sure, it helps, but it doesn't offset all of those costs, especially with rising rent, rising food costs, all of those things. So it has been an incredibly expensive pursuit. And I, I, I have yet to see if it's going to pay off in a traditional sense. Well, you know, we really 
drew a lot from you, Rochelle, on various episodes in College Land over the year that we were working together on it. And especially like the food insecurity episode where we really talked about basic needs and you did a lot of the research for that episode and talked with us about it. I think it's really, uh, we've really come across this key um, problem. You know, Christopher Newfield, who writes a lot about higher education, says, why should we discourage people from going to graduate school? We should not be discouraging people because we would be, we're contributing to the destruction of, of these fields. You know, at least make somebody else destroy me, right? <laughs> at least make somebody else destroy the rich subfields that have been developed over generations and now of knowledge and expertise that are now languishing because there just aren't enough graduate students even going to school anymore to pursue all of those, right? So it's a really tough, really tough issue. But that number that you raised, 40K of undergraduate debt, you know, I graduated about three decades before you, or I'm not actually sure, maybe two decades, but um, I had $2,000 of undergraduate debt. You know, I had $2,000 of undergraduate loans. So the difference is just so stark. And it's way too often the students who are bearing the, the price. But you have been doing this really amazing work, right? You've been doing the really cool you know, public humanities work of WORT and EdgeFX and College Land, um, but you've also been writing a dissertation. And so we wanted to ask you, you know, just we have, we've hardly talked about this on College Land, right? We we don't even know that much. Lisa and I don't even know that much about. Like, can you give us just the the short elevator pitch about your dissertation? Okay, elevator pitch. Got it. So my dissertation looks at the cultural significance of the Swedish furniture store, Ikea. And at this point, it's kind of a mix of looking at fictional representations of Ikea in literature and film, where it often is presented in a dystopian light. But I'm also looking at some of the company's real world practices and ways that the store functions almost like kind of a museum of Swedish culture and connections that that's had throughout history to white nationalism. Honestly, though, I just tell people that I'm writing about IKEA, and literally everyone I talk to has a story to tell about it. That's the thing that I love the most about this topic. So, Rochelle, given what we've said about the job market, though, you know, and the lack of academic jobs, especially jobs on the tenure track, how are you thinking about the future? And how does college land fit into the way that you're thinking about the future? Right. Well, so this is the big question for every graduate student right now, especially during COVID. That has changed the stakes even more so. And the, the job market is really abysmal, quite frankly. And in my field, it's kind of interesting in Scandinavian studies. A lot of times, I mean, everyone knows what that job is. And I say that job because there might be like one or two openings in any given year. Now, the great thing is that I'm poised to be one of the perfect people to take that job, but it could just mean moving 
moving to the middle of nowhere, you don't get a lot of say in where you're going to go. And, you know, it may or may not come up. It may or may not coincide with your graduation. So this is something that, you know, I've been constantly thinking about since day one is just timing out when I leave the program so that there's something waiting out there for me. Now, increasingly, I've sort of squared away the fact that I might not be staying in academia. And I think basically all of my colleagues that I talk to are sort of making this same pivot where there's track A, track B, track C. You kind of have these different ideas of, okay, well, if there is an academic job, here's what I'll do. And okay, if there isn't an academic job, then here's what I might do. And if that thing doesn't pan out, then here's the other thing I might do. It's just trying to prepare for a variety of different futures. And that's something that I've been doing as well. So I've kind of had my eye to figuring out where I I might go if these jobs don't open up or if they're not appealing to me when they do. So you mentioned my role at WORT. Interestingly enough, I came into radio specifically because there wasn't a campus job for me one summer. I don't have summer funding, which is to say I'm not you know, given any teaching or other assignments over the summer by my department, so I'm not receiving a salary at that time. And that kind of puts graduate students in this sort of panic state of trying to figure out, okay, how do I make these three months of summer work? How do I pay my rent? There are a lot of graduate students who will take off campus work, sometimes in retail or the restaurant industry. Sometimes they have freelance or contract work that they can take. For me, I was searching for a campus job and there was a glut of applicants to everything that I applied for. It's just really difficult to even get something like a summer job. So I was really just kind of fiddling my thumbs, wondering what to do with my summer, and I came to volunteer at WORT as a news reporter. Now, I'd never been a journalist. I'd never done the news. I'd never worked with audio. And the news director here just really took a chance on me and said, you're a graduate student, pretty sure you can handle all of this. Let's set you to work. And I really appreciated that. I really valued that because it's true that sometimes when you go off campus, you'll have employers say, well, you don't know what you're doing. And, you know, not really recognize the skill set that comes with having done graduate school. So that was really meaningful to me that here at WRT, I was just kind of set to work and there was a lot of trust there and I was able to kind of flourish in that role. And from there, I became a producer of a talk show. And I guess I'll just say, you know, here I am at College Land. <laughs> I met Nan through that role that I have at WORT. And she approached me about doing this. And I thought, you know, I love audio. I love podcasting. I'm in this world now. Let's make it happen. Yeah, it was it was fun because I was doing I was sub hosting and yay, yay community radio. Yay! Um, I I'm a sub host for WRT when one of the regular hosts can't make it, and so I got to know Rochelle, super smart producer who puts on this show every single day on a different topic. So yeah, when Lisa and I came up with the um, well, it was Lisa's idea. <laughs> I'm blaming you. Um, idea to do College Land. I thought of I thought of you right away, Rochelle. So yeah, it's pretty cool to see. Uh, you know, it's like silver lining, right? Here's this abysmal job market, um, really untenable state of graduate education, and people feel really pushed to develop an alternative career path. And that kind of that is that is um, itself a controversial topic that we could go into. But silver lining for you, you've done some really cool stuff and developed a lot of a really big skill set. 
Rochelle, one of the things that has really struck me in working with you over the past year is that I see you juggling so many different things, wearing so many different hats, yet still really committed to graduate school and to higher edu education as a project for you and also kind of humanity. I wonder if you can talk about that. Why does it seem so worth it still? Right. Well, it's it's one of those things where you can really believe in an institution and it can still really let you down. And the example that I always give to like my fellow Americans, people living here in the U.S. is like, you know, there are things that we love about this country. And then there are the things that are really, I mean, deeply let us down about it. These deep injustices and these ways that we want to change. Higher ed feels kind of like a, a parallel to that. It's a space that you're in and that you're happy to be in. But you can also kind of see the wreckage building around you. And so I, I kind of feel like I'm occupying both of those roles. And it really depends on what room I'm in, where it's just like if there's someone who's kind of going to town on elite colleges and what the heck are they doing and kids these days, I'm going to be there to make the defense of why we're here and just how many bright students come through our doors and the, the futures that we can maybe help them to have. But it's absolutely true that then when I'm in that room talking about those futures with other people who are in higher ed, I have a lot to say. I think that as an institution, we're really letting a lot of people down. So these two feelings live within me at the same time, and I kind of express them in my different ways. But I think for me, I just I do believe in education and I do believe in the humanities, and that has really stuck with me. It's been the thing that I've kind of been here for since day one, and it's something that I still really believe in. I really feel that I have learned and grown and been enriched by this experience. And yes, I will sort of hold higher ed accountable in my head and shake my fist when I'm paying these loans for the rest of my life, probably when I don't get to retire. There's all kinds of problems with the economy and I'm shaking my fist and I am let down that this institution like didn't give me a way to have a good life that was free of financial stress. But I, I also just, I love what I've learned here. I love who it's put me in contact with and I can't help myself but still sort of encourage the next generation to at least give it a try on coming to school um, because coming to school is kind of what really helped me sort of find my voice and my independence. And so even if I pivot away and I go into industry, I personally will be grateful for what I've had here. It is important, though, for, for folks to know the cost of that. And I'm just one of those people where if I were to look back and do it all over again, I kind of think I would. And maybe I'm just a glutton for punishment, but I kind of think that I would. Well, Rochelle, I think that that combination of deep love and a clenched fist is very paradigmatic for college land. And it is part of why you have been so instrumental over the past year in developing the vision for college land, as well as managing our technology and our sound and our editing. So it's been such a great pleasure to work with you in all of these capacities, and we're excited to hopefully continue that as time goes on, and we're excited to see what the future holds for you. Yes, thank you so much. I owe you both a huge thank you for just kind of letting me come on this journey. It's totally my style, and I have really enjoyed it, and I'm very much looking forward to season two. I sort of, you know, have a sneak peek at some of the things that might be coming our way. So I'm just really excited for that. Really excited to see where the podcast goes, because I think this conversation is one we need to keep having. Listeners, 
I hope you are excited to see what the future holds for College Land. Stay tuned, and we'll be back in the fall. Thank you.